Welcome to the Interactions Podcast, brought to you by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. Now in its 40th year, our center explores the interactions of law and religion through research and scholarship, teaching and training, and public programs. This season of the podcast explores recent scholarship in law and religion from members of the center community. This podcast is produced by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and in collaboration with CanopyForum.org. Today's guest is John Whitty, Jr., Robert W. Woodruff Professor of Law, McDonald Distinguished Professor of Religion, and Faculty Director of the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. A specialist in legal history, human rights, religious freedom, marriage and family law, and law and religion, he has published more than 300 articles, 19 journal symposia, and 45 books. As the latest addition to this large body of work, Woody's new book, Table Talks, is a collection of short reflections on what he calls, quote, the weightier matters of law and religion. It was published open access through Brill Academic Press earlier this year and is intended for both law students and the broader public. In this conversation, we talk with John about the inspiration for the book, his advice for students, and the role of academics in public discourse, among other topics. Thank you for listening to the Interactions Podcast. My name is Whitney Barr, the Executive Director of the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and the Charlotte McDaniel Scholar. My name is John Bernard, a sociologist and Director of Digital Scholarship at the Center. Today we're joined by John Whitty Jr., Robert W. Woodruff Professor of Law, McDonald Distinguished Professor, and Faculty Director of the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So your latest book, Table Talks, is a bit of a departure from the rest of your books. Can you tell us about the inspiration to write this book? Part of it is um, to be a teacher, uh, which I love being, and I try to do that through my academic work. But this was an attempt to take um, small avuncular reflections that I've done over the years and to put them together in one book and to realize that there is a whole new audience out there, especially through open access, that um, historically I've not reached. And so the idea was to gather a few of the nuggets that are at least uh, collections of things that I've done uh, and put them in one place. And I come to this as a legal historian, uh, an historian of law and religion in the West, and table talks are a conventional genre. We've been doing this for 500 years since the printing press, and it's a, an interesting way of, of providing connective tissue uh, between big books, between big ideas, uh, and especially as the uh, genealogy of the work of law and religion and general emerges, um, having one person's take on you know, what's going on between the big books and what's going on between uh, classes, I think, is, is helpful. And um, as historically Table Talks have played that role, I was hoping that this would be useful to people looking at the development of the law and religion field, too. And so this book is made up of four parts. The first is the talk to law students. The second, talks on public issues. The third, talks from the pulpits. And the fourth, words of remembrance. Um, And so starting with this first part, uh, your talks to students range from practical advice, like always take a day off on the weekend, um, to more profound meditations on the vocation of the lawyer and the importance of emancipation and freedom in in human life. And so this is quite a range. Um, And as a law professor, why, why was this practice important for you to start with? And to continue with your law students? So it was inspired in part by models I had Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a law student. Archibald Cox was one of my favorite professors, and he always had uh, these five-minute, seven-minute reflections on life and law um, when I was taking him for um, introductory classes, especially in the first year. 
Uh, and I found that very, very helpful in this uh, action-packed and highly stressful time of one's life, which is deeply formative, uh, to have a few avuncular reflections that allow a student to realize that outside the law and as part of their budding life as legal professionals, they have to remember all the other fundamental things, the basic habits that keep them healthy, the basic relationships that have sustained them, uh, the basic aspirations that brought them to the legal profession in the first place, uh, and then having them recognize that they are stepping onto a lofty platform mm -hmm. as a budding lawyer, and they're going to have to answer very deep questions, fundamental questions of life and society uh, that their clients and that their cases are going to put to them. And giving students a few of the resources to be able to reflect on that beyond the doctrinal and procedural expertise that they cultivate in the classroom seemed important to me. And it was also a, um, a way of settling students down, I found, uh, for them to, in this really hotbed of, of nine months of immersion in the law, uh, to realize that the life they had before and the life they'll have after uh, law school uh, is there. And it's there in an increasingly old man uh, who's talking to them and giving them the kind of reflections that when I started, uh, their siblings would give them and then their parents would give them and now their grandparent would give them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found students responded to that mm -hmm. as much as they responded to any of the formal instruction each day. Is there a specific talk that you included in the book that was particularly memorable for students or that they you know, bring up in future conversations with you? Um, the one that oftentimes uh, caught their uh, derisive attention when I offered it and then uh, ongoing edification as they got into their careers was to take a day off on the weekend. Mm. Call it soft sabbatarianism if you want, but I, I always told the students on the last day of the week when we gather together, it is really important for you to take one day off on the weekend. For the first 12 weeks of the semester, take a day off away from the law, away from your legal studies, and go to the things that you love. Um, go back to your art studio or a music studio and do something that you love. Hang out with your friends. Go to the gym. Go to a play. Go dancing. Go do something. Go to a community that feeds you. Spend time on those primary relationships that have been part of your life before. And learn to give yourself that oasis once a week of time uh, for things outside the law. And learn those habits now because if you don't learn them now, um, you're never going to learn them once you get out and step out into the big legal practice that's demanding 2,500 billable hours from you. So learn those habits now for your sake, for your, your loved one's sake, for uh, your health, uh, for your happiness in the law. Students oftentimes, I mean, almost every year when I offered that the first time or two, they said, are you crazy? <laughs> uh, and almost every time, uh, 25 years later, that class would have one or two or three representatives that would come to me uh, beleaguered, dressed to the nines, sitting in my office and saying, um, Professor Whitty, I don't remember anything you taught me about crim criminal law or constitutional law or whatever it was in the first year. But I remember you always had this Dutch uncle talk and you always told us to take a day off on the weekend, which I reminded them of having told them in more detail what I was doing the first time. Uh, and they said, I thought that was crazy when you offered it. I worked seven days a week. I was top of my class. I had a wonderful, rich career, but I'm miserable. Hmm. I'm miserable. I have, you know, I make seven figures. I've dressed to the nines. I have three houses. I have fabulous cars. I have more money in the bank I know what to do with, and I'm absolutely miserable. Hmm. I'm on my third spouse. I don't have any contact with my kids. My parents have died, and I wasn't around to see them, and I don't know what to do with myself. And maybe it's 
because I didn't take a day off on the weekend. And um, I said, well, maybe, but that's retrospective. Now let's talk about what you can do going forward. And almost inevitably, it has them thinking about, well, building primary relationships in their life again, uh, doing something productive that's outside the law, and doing exactly what that little one day a week snit, snippet of work and time was supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. So that's the one that stick, sticks to me, and it's one I always repeat every year. Even I, I have a whole bevy of them, and I put a few of them in the book. Mm-hmm. But right. by the way, that's also a good recruiting device for seminary because many times I send them to seminary, <laughs> which, which they gleefully go to, um, or they, be, they they chair a foundation, or they go do something um, interesting. It's interesting to see them yearning for purpose outside of law, mm. even though law provides its own inherent and deep and rich purpose. Mm. Um, in thinking about these talks and these issues that you cover in these talks, have there been any, any issue where your thinking has evolved as a result of your interactions with students over the years? I think my role has played just as I've aged. Um, as I indicated kind of facetiously in passing, I was their brother initially, and then I became their dad, and then I became their granddad. And you play a very different kind of role in uh, each of those vocations in life. I found with my kids and grandkids, and I now find with my students too. Um, students change when you're their peer. You're basically you play basketball with them, you hang out with them, and the, the whole job is to try to distinguish yourself in a way that allows them to appreciate the authority that somebody has over them, even if they're really their chronological and social peer. And it was important for me then to. Uh, encourage students to recognize that uh, you're walking into a deeply structured um, legal profession that has uh, a number of basic rules of etiquette and responsibility and and, um, expectation that you have to have. And if you're sitting sitting in front of a 28-year-old judge, you don't don't snap towels with that judge. You treat the judge with your honor. And if you're dealing with a managing partner who's senior, you have to deal with them responsibly, even if they're not on their game anymore. And part of it was that. When I became 45 or so, uh, I found that my role became very much um, helping them um, transition into professional adulthood. Uh, and kind of watching them, coaching them, uh, helping them deal with inevitable life crises that came on. They, they often would come to me and sit and we would talk at length about relationships that have gone bust or addictions they might have or um, real conflicts they had about their profession and, and their choice to, to go into the law. And now as I've gotten older, I think my, my responsibility is to try to uh, – while I offer each of those things, I try to now kind of tell them more about the – the majesty of the legal tradition that they're entering, the the kind of role they're playing as a as an important cog in a in a cosmic wheel that's been at it for a long time and in dealing with the fundamentals, and maybe if you get grayer and balder, you're able to say those things a little bit more um, uh, responsibly as well as with a little bit more credibility with the students. And so I've I found that being uh, more important as I've gotten older. So you'll you'll see some of in the books a few narratives about you know emancipation narratives and you'll see a few things about you know kind of core responsibilities that you're going to have to uh, the bench and the bar and to the profession altogether and it's hard to say that when you're a 28 year old or 26 year old whenever I was when I started teaching um, easier to say when you're uh, in your 60s so I think I think the content's probably the same but I think the um, 
posture. The posturing and, and the uh, kind of the object of what you're doing has mm. changed a bit. Yeah, interesting. John, you tell one particularly fascinating story of your 1995 visit with Patriarch Alexei II, the religious leader of the Russian Orthodox Church. Could you tell our listeners a bit about this encounter and what you took away from it? Yeah, that was a very meaningful and deep encounter for me. I titled it Freedom of Silence. Uh, the context was post-Glasnost Russia. Uh, the Soviet Union was no more. Gorbachev's perestroika and Glasnost ideas had taken the form of uh, accepting um, many of the Western paradigms of liberty and equality and fraternity. Um, the Russian constitution was highly progressive in 1993 in endorsing uh, a whole bevy of rights that the American founders and French founders would have uh, enjoyed, including in their uh, declarations two centuries before. Um, and Russia suddenly, long trammeled and long closed, was suddenly open to Western missionaries and to uh, a bevy of especially American and European and South Korean-based um, activists who came for the first time in a century into this long closed and trampled regime uh, to share the gospel, to share their good news, to uh, create schools and charities, to have uh, concerts and uh, crusades and do a variety of things to uh, bring the gospel as they saw it to the Russian Orthodox Church. Initially, the Russian Orthodox Church welcomed these foreigners, welcomed the opportunity to learn from them, um, and then rather quickly began to realize that this Western um, democratic human rights-based formulation of life uh, was a toxic compound that the Russian people simply were not ready to absorb. Mm -hmm. And the Russian Orthodox Church in particular was not able to participate in the open marketplace of religious ideas. They had no seminaries. They had little literature. They had rather little um, parish life beyond that of the parson priest who was almost always a political appointment, uh, and they turned to the state to try to help them. Uh, and by doing what the patriarchs uh, had always asked the czar to do, uh, which was to close the borders and to reduce religious pluralism and to give special protection to the Russian Orthodox Church. That context was that context. That is the context for the meeting that we had the privilege of organizing with uh, the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church at the time, Patriarch Alexei, uh, Harold Berman, my late great colleague and mentor, a great specialist on Russia and the Soviet Union, uh, led a delegation of about twenty of us, who had an audience with the Russian Orthodox Patriarch in his retinue, asking. Um, we're we're there to ask the Patriarch to abandon this kind of protectionism to continue to embrace human rights and religious freedom to help us understand the conditions under which that could properly be um, exercised on all sides, including the Russian Orthodox Church's side. And we were there to protect American-style religious freedom and uh, demonstrate to Russia that, in point of fact, that's what they have in their own Russian constitution and that's what their signatory, being a signatory to the International Covenant on civil and political rights with its very strong religious freedom provision was all about. So we, we were there armed with our arguments. We had it all choreographed as to who was going to say what. Uh, a lot of really smart lawyers. I'm not sure why I was there except for <laughs> Berman's, uh, carrying Berman's briefcase. Uh, but I, I had been involved in, in that religious freedom world as well um, and had my own little arguments to make. And so we waited in this palatial uh, setting. And Patriarch Alexei and his retinue came in. Through an interpreter, he said, 
God bless you, my brothers and sisters. We bowed. Shall we pray? And so we had 45 minutes total, and for the next 44 minutes, <laughs> we prayed. But we prayed in absolute silence. And eventually on our knees, on hard floor, he had a pad, we didn't. Um, and Alexei stood up. We all stood up. And he said, oh God, who has taught us that there is a time to speak and a time to be silent. There is a time to sow seed and a time to harvest seed. God bless these brothers and sisters of mine who have come. Thank you very much. Mm. And he walked out. And there we were armed with all our arguments. We were there armed with all of our, you know, usual importance of, you know, open marketplace of ideas and good ideas are, you know, balanced by bad ideas and vice versa. Um, all the good work that we wanted to do, all the crusades we wanted to run, all the charities, all the good hard work we were doing on behalf of the Lord. Um, we were rebuked, absolutely rebuked by another gospel truth, that there is a time to be silent, and that there is a time to speak, and that, you know, in the presence of God, sometimes the best thing to do is to uh, simply sit in reverence. And, you know, through this powerful, powerful expression of silence, uh, we Westerners were schooled on what freedom of speech can actually mean. And it was a very moving time for me, and I, it forced me to appreciate um, the Russian Orthodox Church even more than I had already, and especially the power of silence as a, uh, as a fundamental aspect of religious worship and identity and practice. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, Protestants should know that. You know, <laughs> it's kind of what we're about, but it was good to be reminded, even if by a leader of another faith. So turning to the second part of the book, which um, you include talks to the public. Um, these include meditations on religious symbolism, the institution of marriage, and the rights of children, among other topics. So these are all topics you've written about extensively uh, throughout your career as a legal historian. Um, and when these topics enter the public conversation, how do you see your role um, in, in contributing to that conversation? Yeah, part of it's playing to my strength. I'm not a litigator. I'm not a lobbyist. I'm not in the business of trying to craft legislation for the next generation. Uh, what I have been given is the opportunity to, to create a genealogy of those problems and issues and to think through uh, the depth of um, some of the topics that are under discussion and uh, suggest that sometimes when we're trying to reform things that we're actually upending 2,000 or 3,000 year traditions. Sometimes when we're uh, trying to you know, take a particular topic, my job is to contextualize that topic a little bit. Um, part of it is to um, not to say there's nothing new under the sun, but to remind people that we have been through crisis moments before and we have survived and some of the tools of resilience and resolution historically were as follows and maybe those can be thought about again. And the, you know, the fundamentals of faith, freedom, and family, the three things that people will die for, um, those are the things that I have studied historically and those are the things that oftentimes um, get pressed very, very strongly to the fore and get reduced to bumper sticker 20-second uh, soundbite kinds of, of um, 
reductios. And my, my, I see my job as an historian. I see my job as a scholar to try to, um, to widen the conversation a bit, to contextualize the conversation a bit, maybe to dampen the conversation a bit with um, appreciation for the sacrifices that went into the creation of some of the things that we're trying to change and the methodologies by which our forebears found ways of living together. Um, and sometimes even if necessary with building fences. Mm. And sometimes fence building is what you're trying to encourage. Mm. And so these little op-eds, um, I've done too many of them, um, we're trying, trying to distill some of these, um, some of the scholarship and trying to, to put, point people to resources beyond what currently is under discussion. Mm. John, in this volume, you move between personal experiences and academic reflections in a way that is almost an invitation to the reader into a conversation. And, you know, it struck us that many of the topics you cover here are what might be considered hot-button topics, and we don't often see spaces where nuanced conversations take place around some of these issues. Can you reflect on the importance of speaking from both personal and academic perspectives while addressing different audiences? Yeah, I'm, this book is new in the sense that speaking out of autobiographical experiences is not something I have done much before. Mm -hmm. it's, it probably shows in the, the, some of the awkwardness and tentativeness of uh, some of my reflections there. Um, maybe this is apropos of what Whitney and I discussed a bit earlier about being in a little f different phase of life and trying to distill what mm -hmm. learning one has based on experience and being a little more comfortable in sharing that than historically I was. I was and remain a pretty private person. But part of it is also, you know, we I think we have come to uh, appreciate the micro example much more than historically. Um, an historian of ideas like I am uh, would like to appreciate and I, and lived history, lived law, lived religion mm -hmm. uh, has become, um, I think, an increasingly important dimension beyond mm -hmm. the doctrine, beyond the cases, beyond the statutes, the constitution, and the lofty debates around them. Uh, what that means on the ground and what it means for an individual person um, is, I think, in I have come to appreciate that as an, an increasingly important part of uh, public pedagogy. And so drawing to the extent I can from historical figures, uh, as I've always done, um, and biographical narrative is an important part of what I've, what I've long done in my scholarship, I thought in increasingly important to empathize with readers and listeners and, and share um, personal stories that might have a bearing. Mm. So just as a one example, um, you know, all the heated discussion about uh, abortion rights and pro-life and um, pro-liberty and all, and all the hard dialectics around that. Um, I'm always trying this for a via media position on a lot of these contested issues. And on this one, it struck me as important to appreciate, um, you know, my own life path which was back in late 19, or mid-1959, my you know, mother being told that you know, this being in her womb, whatever it was and however you wanted to call it, really should be terminated because that being in the womb is, is going to kill her. Um, and she insisted, not out of real strong religious conviction, but just insisted on personal conviction that she wanted to bear this child to term. 
And the child was three weeks late and a small little runt, and it turned out to be me. Um, and my mother suffered amply from carrying me to term. But now all of a sudden there's a kind of a new experience of, of well, you can appreciate a child's rights perspective a little bit better uh, perhaps if you're the child who's enjoyed the benefit of it. Uh, and I'm not to say that her decision was the right one or the wrong one for everyone, but at least it, for me, underlying kind of personal experience with um, what what was at stake. In, and I've been on the other side and listened to people telling these horrible stories of being, you know, my, my, the flip side of this was, you know, my parents' family, um, they lived through the Nazi um, invasion of the Netherlands. And many of those young ladies, including in my mother's family, were systematically raped uh, by the crew cuts that on furlough came to their towns and, and simply um, raped them in, with abandon. And inevitably, uh, they got pregnant. And they had to create a system of being rid of that odious fruit of that illicit relationship. And, you know, the abortion then for them was the only option and the real option. And sharing that kind of story, story too is a uh, an important part of people listening. And those that have a kind of brittle, uberalis, you know, pro-life or pro-liberty, you have to, I think you have to appreciate um, the hard nuance of these stories um, and appreciate the anguish that um, would-be mothers have to go through if they choose the hard path of abortion and get past the caricatures that dominate this kind of discourse. Follow up. Um, so, in 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 bringing together these types of um, reflections, the academic and the and the personal, um, do you use, we we thought of it as a kind of a conversation? But does that resonate for you? Like, is this an invitation for people to think about and uh, you know some of these academic themes in their own personal perspectives, or is that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, part of writing it in this vein uh, as a hopefully accessible uh, mm -hmm. set of reflections, part of it writing in little nuggets that people can share, mm -hmm. putting it in open access format that anybody who's interested can read it, is designed to catalyze conversation mm -hmm. and provide concrete cases and concrete reflections that people can disagree with, but hopefully stimulate them to uh, begin to think about their own narratives and about their own perspectives and whether around the their own tables at home, uh, the table talk, or around, you know, Eucharist or other worship tables that they may gather around, or perhaps around editorial tables and, and news desks, which they used to have. They don't have so much of those anymore, <laughs> but I used to regularly go to these um, editorial meetings at different papers and would sit for, with 20 smart reporters and, and talk for an hour or two or three and answer questions. Um, this is designed in part to reconstruct that and mm -hmm. to give people the resources or some of the resources to be able to um, build their own conversations around their own tables in, in whether virtual or actual. Mm -hmm. You alluded at the beginning of the, at the outset of the podcast around this being a, a form, table talk as a form, and I wonder if there are specific examples I think you reference in the beginning of the book too, and if you want to share any of those historical examples of table talks for people who may be less familiar with the genre. Yeah, so it's uh, it, the genre was, was became very popular in the 16th century with uh, the rise of the printing press and a desire to share um, reflections by leaders, cultural, religious, political leaders of communities. 
And the most famous of those 16th century collections was by Martin Luther, uh, the 16th century German reformer who uh, inaugurates the Lutheran Reformation. Um, in his vast 98 volumes of, of collected writings, um, there are probably more now, <laughs> more volumes since I worked on him, uh, but there are six of those volumes are what are called table talk, Tischreden. Um, and they were just collections of reflections that he, around his own table uh, at home in the Luther house or uh, sometimes around educational tables at the church or in the school, uh, would reflect on things. And he had a whole uh, tribe of people taking notes, uh, and they would write down sometimes silly little anecdotes, sometimes deep meditations and reflections in response to a question um, sometimes he himself would write a table talk and, and throw it into the collection. And mercifully, his editors kept a lot of that stuff early on. And um, it became a very valuable, as I said, form of connective tissue uh, between his big sermons and, and big Reformation tracts and his commentaries on the Bible and many of the other things that he did. This gave us an insight into the evolving mind. And the editors were very good about dating these things too, which was, I think, quite helpful. Um, lawyers use table talks too. And uh, the most uh, poignant example for me was this uh, very complex legal philosopher, legal historian, John Selden, um, the greatest legal historian of the 17th century in England, who writes in this um, very complicated, convoluted Latin uh, verse almost impossible to read. Uh, sometimes you have to because it was so profound, but it was really difficult stuff. And he's got 44 volumes of this stuff, and it's just impossible to get through. Um, but the liveliness of his mind and our capacity to see what he's doing in some of these complicated texts was the fact that he wrote a little table talk, and he actually updated it a few times. And it was for him private reflections on different things, everything from abbots to zealotry, I think. Uh, and it was alphabetically organized around um, really nice little nuggets from a sentence or two, sometimes a whole page or two. Um, and those were two of many, many examples that you find in the evolving Western canon, uh, the print canon in particular. Um, Playwrights like to use this. Goethe did uh, some of these. Samuel Johnson did some of these. Many of the big philosophers did some of these. I mean, they get called various things. They, um, I mean, as bland as Pascal's Pensies, which are thoughts to, you know, my, med my life meditations on X or diary and reflective essays by, you know, Sidney Smith on Y. Um, titles are variant, but the genre is the same. Mm -hmm. And it's a familiar genre and the tradition designed I think designed in part um, for continued edification, mm. uh, often taught posthumously for a while, but when editors would gather somebody's works and they didn't know quite what to do with this miscellanea, uh, they would put them together. But eventually they became quite deliberately self-generated texts that um, authors themselves, as they developed their own modes of thinking and shifted to new topics, um, thought it important to, to collect and eventually publish. Mm. Samuel Johnson is probably the best example of a, a literary um, figure who, who brilliantly uses, uses table talks three or four times in his career. As, here, here are, here's the bend in the road, and let me you know, guide you down this, uh, down this next path. Mm -hmm. I'm show you what I'm thinking. I wish we would have had Immanuel Kant do that so we could understand <laughs> what he was talking about. But that's another thing. I'm still waiting for that to be published. <laughs> yeah. 
And I just I love this idea of table talks. Even the imagery has kind of this democratic, Eucharistic mm. kind of we're all on the same playing field. Yeah. Mm. And so making this material accessible, I think, is really important. And I mean, we talked about the importance of lived experience, mm. lived history, these micro examples. So it really is kind of a way to take these heady ideas and mm. kind of deliver them in a democratic way. Almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's the great leveler, isn't it? I mean, it's um, um, maybe we in church we all you know kneel our kneel at the bench and we take the Eucharist and we're humbled that way. But there's an authority figure above us, the priest who's delivering. Mm -hmm. You know, in school, uh, we all sit at the same level of the desk, but there's a teacher that's you know teaching you. Um, here, you're right. It's this is the fundamental leveler, mm -hmm. and you know, mom and dad who have authority at home, or mom and mom or dad or dad nowadays, um, who have authority at home. They sit at the same level with their children, mm. uh, and they talk to them uh, at their level. Mm. And uh, it's a editorial tables too. They're they're flat. Uh, I always insist in a seminar setting to um, sit with the students. And when I teach, I I never stand behind a lectern. I'm always walking around. I'm talking with them. I'm walking up and down the aisle to be with them. And part of that is to part of this to make it. It's. <laughs> Some of it's the priesthood of all believers writ large for this uh, uh, us three Protestants, but a lot of it is is just the the recognition that you often tend to learn better when you're learning in conversation rather than having it declared. Um, and you know, conversational truth, the marketplace of discussion, um, tends to be um, more resilient uh, when you're trying to teach folk than you know having something declared at you. Um, you'll remember a you know a a five-minute conversation around a table much more than you can remember a 45-minute sermon that was bellowed at you yet again from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the inspiration for this. Mm -hmm. So, John, you open the book with talks to students, and you close the book with a collection of touching tributes to people that have been formative to you, mm -hmm. um, one of which is your father, but also professors and colleagues. Could you tell us about your decision to end the book this way? Um... Part of it's the historian of me again. Uh, funeral sermons and funeral eulogies are an important part of um, how we learn about other people as well as learn about the author giving the sermon or um, reflection. Uh, part of it is what we talked about a bit earlier, which is you know sharing experience that other people inevitably are going to have, uh, and you know the in the anguish of losing a loved one uh, or somebody formative in your life. Um, trying to find a way of, of you know, articulating what we have about that person that is important to share with other folk. Um, it's designed to help choreograph empathy, if you will, uh, for people that are suffering and have lost their loved ones. Part of it is just to pay tribute to the people that have um, made me what I am. Um, and I've found, um, I've done way too many eulogies in my lifetime too but I picked the ones for people that um, I wanted to lift up mm -hmm. I, I wanted to credit and thank for their contribution to my life but also write a pick one pick uh, reflections that might by analogy help uh, somebody else who is suffering from the loss of a loved one and trying to put into words their grief in a way that might be meaningful and helpful 
one thing that struck me in reading some of these is, is the role of the mentor um, in, in the formation of students, but also lifelong, lifelong formation. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for students as they start their careers, be it legal practice or in academia or even, you know, in religious training and, and um, on this importance of, of mentors. Hmm. Yeah, we are in a um, um, the legal profession is by design a mentorship profession. Mm -hmm. Historically, it was an apprentice system where you learn under a master or mistress and mm -hmm. absorb from them the instruction that they could give you, the example they could give you, and then you became a master or mistress of the law yourself. Um, now we do it through formal legal education, but the mentorship role is still there. Mm -hmm. And it's mentorship en masse with the students in your class, uh, but it's also mentorship one-on-one -on -one and finding a individual faculty member or an important person in the legal profession that can be your go-to person. Who can be your champion, who can be your confidant, who can be your confessor, who can be somebody that you can rely on to um, be a bedrock for you. Um, every person needs that. Um, a bevy of them is even better, but a, a, a mentor or two is really important uh, to have in your, especially your budding professional life. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of role that I've been privileged to play with a number of students over the years. You get it intensely when you have a doctoral student or a student who's writing something major for you. Um, but it often kind happens that you stumble into mentorship responsibilities mm -hmm. where a desperate student comes into your office and you can sit with them and there's something that clicks mm -hmm. and in that relationship you've kind of built a, uh, the first steps of mutual trust that mm -hmm. a student can build on. I have young students, you know, students that were youngsters of teaching since 1987 and there are a few students that you know, I taught in the late 80s and early 90s with whom I keep a bit of contact. And once in a while, they'll call me up and run a problem by me or mm -hmm. they'll, you know, just ask advice because they're concerned about this or that. And it's a wonderful, wonderful um, role to play now. And I was the benefit, beneficiary of that as a younger student and a young professional where I had great, great mentors in college and in law school uh, and at Emory uh, when I got here. And... Um, Harold Berman, my great teacher at Harvard Law School and then a mentor and colleague here at Emory. Uh, Frank Alexander, a, a young colleague who was here, my age more or less, a little bit older, but he kind of played a very important mentorship role. Uh, Abdullah Naeem, a, a great Sufi jurist who was a very important part of my life in appreciating the other uh, people of other faith and people of other culture, but you know, fundamentally a brother. Um, having... Um, Having those people in my life uh, has been and continues uh, in memory in some instances to be so critical to me and mm -hmm. trying to play, pay it forward, as they say, mm -hmm. and to do that for students and colleagues is uh, what I think one of my big responsibilities is, especially as I get to be an old guy. <laughs> Donna, is there any uh, parting words you have about the book or last uh pieces of wisdom for our listeners here? Um, I try to put uh, into a little compact 85-page book, uh, you know, the distillation of, of uh, a lot of things that I've been thinking about and writing about and working on for a long time. I do think it underscored for me, which I would probably encourage um, young professionals to think about, is finding some way of keeping a diary or collecting these reflections or being more 
deliberate than I was about um, recognizing that down the road you're going to be asked to play avuncular responsibilities, mentor responsibilities, uh, leadership responsibilities, and it's useful to keep a record of that, and it's useful to be deliberate about doing that even if it's not shared along the way. And I wish I would have done that throughout my life and had a biography or di a diary uh, that I uh, had kept. Um, I used to histor historically, I relied on my memory, but that's not quite what it used to be. Um, and it's uh, especially when you get busy um, taking the taking the five minutes or ten minutes a day to to write down write down a few things, and when you get an inspiration to to collect it. Um, the other thing I would say is I'm a scholar, and maybe this is not useful by analogy for people that are in different walks of life, but I have a folder on my word processor, or whatever it's called now, um, called Ideas. And it's bizarre to me, but uh, inevitably, when you're working intensely on something, completely unrelated comes this interesting thought mm, about mm -hmm. something wholly different. and. One thing I have done, um, which I probably should have systematized even though I was starting to do it, was to kind of keep this idea file. When that idea came, write it out. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's uh, five lines, sometimes it's five pages, but to pound it out. Um, and I would encourage um, listeners to have you know, both a deliberate, um, systematic way of diarying, diarizing, um, but also a spontaneous way of, of collecting good ideas. And uh, the two of them together, I think, will give you a, a pretty big font of inspiration down the road when you need it. And beyond that, I uh, want to thank my dear friends, Whitney and John, for their kindness and uh, allowing me to be here. The book, Table Talk, is available in open access format uh, through Whitney's good offices. We were able to get it released so that it could be out there. And um, we're probably going to do it in um, Chinese language edition and a few Romance languages too uh, as a way of kind of an interesting cultural experiment to see um, yeah. you know, to what extent these insider kind of reflections have a bearing in another culture. So but, uh, that, look for it down the road. <laughs> also free and an open access. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us this afternoon for the podcast. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Likewise. Uh, thank you. Yes. Thanks. Thanks.